Give myself some room to move. I like these wireless mics because I don't trip over the, the cord. Because that's what I do all the time is trip over the cords. So this is good. This is really good. Well, welcome. We're glad you're here again. This is uh, class number four, lesson number four in our, our series. And uh, tonight's lesson is tied directly, really, to last, last, last week's lesson. Last week we talked about divine... Well, divine beginning, yes. And tonight we're going to look at divine design. So one is sort of a continuation of the other. Last week was pretty scientific, right? Did you feel like you went to Science 101? Tonight, it's, this is the graduate level course. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a lot of scientific things and scientific terms. So don't get nervous about it. It's not that important that you remember all the terms. That's not what's important. What's important is that you remember that these things that these terms represent are part of the design that God has built into the universe. And that's what's important. And as we go through it, if you feel like um, uh, you have questions you want to ask, I'll try to give time at the end tonight to address your questions. I should have done that last week, but I forgot. So we'll try to do that tonight if you have uh, specific questions on some of these things or some of these terms. Again, don't get hung up with it. And, um, of course, you're more than uh, welcome to take all the notes you want to take, or you could sit back and relax and uh, uh, try not to snore too loud uh, if you happen to fall asleep. But if you stay awake and, uh, and find something in there you think is, is kind of nice to know and you'd like to remember it, uh, uh, then you know what to do. Send me a email to that address, TompkinsRichard@hotmail.com, and on the subject line you put what? Notes. Put notes, you'll get notes. You say slides, you'll get slides. If you say notes and slides, you'll get notes and slides. Whatever you ask for, you will get. So you're going to get everything. It's on my script tonight. Everything that I intend to say, not necessarily everything that I will say, but everything that I. Gene, your questions already. I hadn't even started. What's that? Money? I don't have any. Oh, oh you mean take up the offering? No? Oh, you can ask for it. I, didn't, I just said you're going to get it. You're perfectly welcome to ask for money. And also, if those questions come up and you would rather ask them in the email, then you can do that in the body of the email, and I'll answer them for you. If you'd rather not ask them out loud tonight. Whatever you want to do. We're here um, to help you to understand a little bit about, uh, a little more about how God has put this whole universe together and why he put it all together. I'd like to begin by looking at Scripture, as I do with every lesson. We begin with Scripture. I'm going to read from uh, Psalms 19. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Their message has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. Well, last week we learned about how the universe has a what? A definite beginning. Therefore, it was caused. It had a cause. So, therefore, it has a what? Definite beginner, a personal beginner, and we call that beginner God. Yes. Well, tonight we're going to build on that because if, if the uh, universe was caused then it must have had what? A purpose. And if it had a purpose, then it has a design to fulfill that purpose. 
So that's a component we want to look at tonight. We know the universe was built and created and began by this first uncaused cause, so therefore it's got to have some sort of purpose and some sort of design to fulfill that purpose. So we want to take a look at the details of that tonight. This is what we call or know as the teleological argument for the existence of God. And uh, it, this, this comes from that Greek word telos, which means purpose. So uh, that's why it's called the teleological argument for the existence of God. Simply stated, it goes like this. Every design has a designer. The universe is highly, has a highly complex design, so therefore what? The universe has a designer. And this designer uh, must have had a purpose for his design, or there would be no design. It wouldn't be there by circumstance. It's there because of purpose. So all we need to do then is examine the design to show that there is a designer. It becomes self-evident as we go through and take a look at this design. Probably the most famous variant to this argument is, uh, was, was put forward uh, by, uh, back in the 17th century by a theologian by the name of William Pauley. And he called it the watch argument. And it kind of goes like this. If you're walking through the middle of the woods and you happen upon this watch and you pick up this watch, now what would you think? Would you think that the woods just grew this watch? Or would you look at this watch and you say, well, hmm, it's, it's engineered, it's made, it works, the hands go around, it ticks. Somebody outside the watch made this watch, right? Because it's pretty complex to just have happened. And so you would, wouldn't assume anything other than the fact that somebody made this watch and, and left it there. And it had a purpose. The watch has a purpose to tell time. No doubt about that. Well, that's the watch argument. And the same kind of thing applies to the universe and life itself. It must have had a creator, and it must have had a designer just because of what it is. No doubt about that. And then that, uh, uh, that someone or that something that designed the universe and the life that exists within it has to meet four criteria. I think we talked about these last week as well. Four criteria. Must have a, a, a power that's great enough or sufficient enough to be able to create the design. So if it's a, a watch, then you know somebody has to have the fair wherewithal, the power to be able to make this watch. It has to be, this person or thing has to be transcendent or outside the design itself. I mean, the watch can't make itself, right? So something outside the watch, maybe if it's a Mickey Mouse watch, maybe you might think that Mickey Mouse may have made it, I don't know. But typically, you don't think of a watch being made by the watch, right? Something outside the watch. And that something or someone must possess intelligence. Smart enough, some enough, enough knowledge and intelligence to be able to figure it out. And lastly, that someone or something must be personal, an individual being. It just didn't happen. The watch didn't pop into existence. Of a, uh, like a mushroom off the dark side of a, uh, of a tree stump. No. It was, it's some personal being made that watch. So those four criteria must be met. If the universe had a creator, then this creator would have had to have also what? Met all these criteria. And we showed last week that the universe does indeed have a creator, a beginner, a first uncaused cause, Right? And we who are believers call that something or someone what? God. And we do so because, he, because He's the only entity 
which can meet all four of these criteria. Nothing else can. That means that God and only God then is necessary. He's the only thing in all, the, all of the universe that is necessary because he's not in the universe. He must exist for the universe to exist. So he and he alone is necessary. So we're going to begin tonight looking at our aspect of design and its intended purpose by taking a look at the overall universe itself. We're going to build down from the farthest reach of the universe all the way down to the very smallest component of, in life. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to go down through that, um, that order. And the overall design and, and its purpose is articulated in what we know as the entropic principle. I told you, I'm going to throw all kinds of terms at you. The entropic principle. And it's from the Greek word that means human or man. Entros. Anthro. Uh, and the principle just basically states that the whole universe was precisely tweaked to support life on earth. The whole, the whole universe. The entire universe structured in such a way that life on earth and only life on earth can exist. And everything in the universe was purposely designed to support that life. And the crown jewel of that life is humanity. Yeah. That's the entropic principle. And we're going to see how that all comes into play as we dissect this thing this evening. The entropic principle includes over a hundred key uh, uh, constants in cosmic relationships that are required in order for life to exist on Earth. Over a hundred. And we're going to just look at a few of them. No, I'm not going to go through a hundred tonight. <laughs> we certainly won't have time for that. You'll be glad that I'm only going to do a, a few. It won't take you long to say, <laughs> come on, hurry up, Richard, get through. We're going to look at a few, ones I think that are most important for us to grasp. The first one I want to look at has to do with the universe in general. So we're going to look at the universe in general first, then we'll look at the earth, and we'll look at um, on down to life on that earth. But start first uh, with the rate of the universe expansion. Last week, we talked about the fact that the universe is expanding, right? And what does that do? What does the universe expand point to? What does it point to? A beginning. Yeah, it means if the universe is expanding, it had to start somewhere. Right? Remember the balloon, balloon, the stars are expanding from each other? Well, that's science that shows us that it must have started somewhere. So the universe had a beginning because it's expanding. But it's also important to understand the rate of that expansion. If the universe was expanding, get this, one millionth slower than it is now, the temperature on Earth would be 10,000 degrees. An expansion of the universe would stop if it would just slow down one millionth. If it was expanding any faster, there would be no galaxies at all that could form. It's at the perfect rate of expansion for there to be life on this earth. Secondly, the velocity or the speed of light. Even a very slight variation in the speed would alter all the other constants and preclude the possibility there could be life on earth. It has to be the, the speed that it is for anything in the universe to exist. That's an Einsteinism. has to be or nothing could exist on on the universe, the speed of light. What is the speed of light? Who knows the speed of light? It's fast, yeah. It's, fa it's faster than me, and I'm fast. 
No, what's the speed of light? Anybody know? 186,000 miles per second. If you're into metrics, that's 300,000 meters per second. It's fast. That's the speed of light. It has to be that, though. It can't be any faster than that, and it can't be any slower than that for there to be anything at all in the physical universe, and certainly not life on this earth. The next thing, gravity, the principle of gravity. What's gravity? Who wants to give me what gravity is? Come on, you know gravity. What happens if there's no gravity? What's that? You float. You float off, right? So gravity is that force, right, that anything that has mass exists. If there's something that has mass, it has gravity. And gravity is that force that the mass has to pull things toward it. So the earth has gravity because it has mass. And so it's pulling, there's an invisible force that's pulling everything to the earth, actually to the, I think to the center of the earth. So what that means is we can walk around and not fall off. We don't float off anywhere. The oceans stay where they're supposed to stay. Everything stays where it's supposed to stay because gravity pulls it down. Well, if that gravity was altered by one part in 10 to the 40th power, that's one with 40 zeros behind it, just altered that much, then our sun would not even exist. Know that? And the moon would not be able to be in this position around the earth. That would be bad. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Things would just crash into space and fly off. So gravity has to be what it is for life to be. What's that? There's a few other. Einstein figured out a lot of it, but not all of it. Sir Isaac Newton, uh, all the, uh, the basic Newtonian laws of physics came from Sir Isaac Newton and a few other people along the way. None of them came from Richard Tompkins, just so you know. I'm not the author of any of these, these principles. The next one, centrifugal force. If centrifugal force did not precisely balance this gravitational force, then nothing could be held in orbit. Nothing. There would be no orbiting of anything. All the planets would just fly off or crash into each other. Now, what's centrifugal force? Let's get that one out. Anybody know what centrifugal force is? You've experienced it. Most of everyone in here is, is, has experienced it, like gravity. If you're in a car, right, and you go around a curve, what happens? There's something that wants to pull you the opposite direction. That's centrifugal force. So if you're turning to the left, there's a force pulling you to the right. That's why you've got to correct. Stay in there. And if you're going and turning to the right, there's a force pulling you off to the left. Centrifugal force. Well, that balance between centrifugal force, that force that's pulling you away, anything in an arc, is a force pulling it away. And the gravity which is pulling it down is what causes and allows things to orbit. So your GPS systems that you find your location with, that's all because of the satellites. It's because of that perfect balance between gravity and centrifugal force. Also a thing called the moon. Without that perfect balance, the moon would not orbit the Earth. That would not be good for Earth. We'll see that in just a little bit. But more importantly, the Earth would not orbit the Sun. That balance has to be just perfect. Or the Earth would not be in its orbit around the Sun. And what, what does that mean? It means there's no life on this Earth. 
It means all the other planets wouldn't be where they're supposed to be. And that's very important, too, because one of those planets named Jupiter has to be where it's at. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. So you see, gravity and centrifugal force not only have to exist, but they've got to exist in perfect balance, or nothing can orbit in space. And without orbiting in space, it does not end well. <laughs> There's no life. And another factor is, is what we call electromagnetic force. It's got to be just right in order to hold atoms together. Not, not atom as a man, but atoms as little particles. An atom, you know, is a smaller, not the smallest. If you're, if you're into quantum physics, you know there's subatomic particles and all that stuff. Uh, but basically, the, the core of matter is, is really comes down to an atom for the most part. In an atom, you have a nuclei and, and electrons that go around it, really small. Without, without that electromagnetic force, that, that marriage, if you will, between an electrical charge and magnetism, that's what electromagnetic force is, atoms could not exist. What happens when an atom falls apart? You've seen a, you've seen a nuclear explosion on TV? That's, a, that's atoms being split. Not good to have atom, atoms split. Not good for Mother Earth, and not good for us who live on it. So that electromagnetic force has to be exactly as it is. Now, I said I was going to talk about Jupiter. Look at Jupiter. If Jupiter was not in its current orbit, and the size was not the size that it is, then the Earth would be constantly bombarded with space material. And you think, well, we have meteorites and things, that, asteroids that come by. Without Jupiter, we would be bombarded almost on a daily basis. Jupiter acts like a huge vacuum out there in space. And its orbit is placed, size in its orbit is placed just right to shield us. God put it just right. So all that trash coming in from the cosmos into the, the solar system goes to it. And it intercepts it for us. Trust me, no life on this earth without Jupiter. It has to be not only be positioned where it's at, it has to be the size that it is. So it can have the right kind of gravitational pull. Very important. That's a miracle. And then lastly, as it relates to the universe, I want to talk about the placement of our solar system. And, of course, with us within the solar system. If you take a, our, 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 our solar system placement within the galaxy, the Milky Way, say it that way. I think I got a picture. There we go. See that galaxy? See how that's positioned? It's like a spiral. See how it spirals out? Well, where we're placed, where our, where our solar system is placed, is out further out. And see where there's bare blank spaces? It's right on the edge of one of those bands where the, bank, the blank space faces us. And why is that important? If we weren't there, we would not be able to see anything outside of our solar system. God placed us where he placed us so that we could see the full magnitude of his creation. That's, that's amazing. Any other place, we wouldn't know. We couldn't explore the universe. We wouldn't know how God made it and how we're positioned in it. But he put us right there in that spot so that we could know. Okay, let's look a little bit about how this whole thing falls out in regards to Earth. The ap uh, atmospheric uh, transparency is very important. Uh, if the atmosphere would be less transparent, and that means the ability to see through it. Transparency is how you can see through the atmosphere. If it was less visible, then we wouldn't uh, have enough solar radiation to reach us 
and we wouldn't have enough life then. Life couldn't exist. If it was any more transparent, we'd be bombarded with so much radiation, life could not exist. It has to be just as it is in order for life to be on this earth. Oxygen levels. The earth has 21% oxygen in its air. That's just right. Can't be much more or less than that. If it was 25%, the world would be on fire. Be too much oxygen. Had too much spontaneous combustion. The whole world would be fire all the time. Just from 21 to 25. If it was 15%, there wouldn't be enough oxygen for life to breathe. We'd all die. We'd suffocate. So we're at that right percent so that we can survive on this, on this earth. The thickness of the earth's crust, that means how thick the outer layer is, just right. If it was any thicker, any greater, then there'd be too much oxygen from the air that would be transferred down into the crust. And thus, we wouldn't have enough oxygen to breathe. If the crust was any thinner, you would have so much volcanic uh, uh, activity, so many earthquakes, that life would be impossible on the surface of the earth. So it's just the right thickness. It's like my grandmother's pie crust, always just the right thickness. And um, uh, uh, carbon dioxide level is very important. You say, well, wait a minute, I, don't, I breathe oxygen, right? Well, you do breathe oxygen. What do you outbreathe? What comes out? Carbon dioxide. Well, wait a minute, who breathes carbon dioxide? Plants do. They take in carbon dioxide. They need it for this process called photosynthesis. And if there's no photosynthesis, then there is no plants. And the plants, what do they give off? Oxygen. So we need the plants. They need CO2 or carbon dioxide in order to survive. And we need them to get it and get enough so that they can give us oxygen so that we can survive. It's, right, it's at the right balance for that to, uh, that to occur. That's why, you know, cutting too many plants out, killing too many plants is not a good thing. Uh, You've got to keep it all in balance. Rotation of the earth takes, what, 24 hours to go around. I don't care what the government says. Just because they, they, they gave us daylight savings time, we didn't save any time. It's still, 20, it's still going around 24 hours. It didn't change. It didn't go around an hour more or an hour less. You have 24 hours, no matter when, winter or summer, takes 24 hours for that earth to go around. And that's important. It has to be. Because if it took any longer than 24 hours, that means it would be rotating a little slower. What happened? The temperature differential between night and day would be too great to support life on the planet, or at least not life like we have it and know it. But if it's any shorter, it means it's going faster, then what would happen? We'd create all kinds of atmospheric winds that would blow the earth, and life would be impossible, plant life and animal life. So it's got to be 24 hours. Very important. And then the tilt of the earth. We're at 23 degrees is the tilt, right? That tilt is extremely important because if that tilt was to change, the surface temperatures on the earth would be too extreme. One way or the other, couldn't have enough temperature uh, on the earth for life to uh, exist. So it's got to be 20, 23 degrees. Now let's take a look at the moon quickly. I'll go th we're going to get through it. We're going to get, hang with me. It's going to get better. Look at the moon. That Earth-Moon gravitational um, uh, interaction is extremely important. You have the Earth and you have the moon. So you got the Earth pulling the moon down. You got the moon what? Pulling the Earth up. 
So there's a, there's a balance there. And the Earth, that gravitational balance plus the centrifugal force causing the moon to go around, it impacts everything on this Earth. Because what? What, what happens with, uh, with, with, with the oceans, with the moon? Tides. What happens if you don't have tides? You have no life. Without tides, you have no sea life at all. And you wouldn't have any uh, other animal life or plant life either. Tides are extremely important to regenerate the ocean. And that in, in, uh, regenerates the, uh, the earth, the air. So that, um, uh, that relationship, that gravitational interaction is extremely important. It's got to be just what it is. And the size of the moon is just perfect. It's a perfect size to produce this positive impact on our life. If it's any larger, it would, uh, you'd have a problem with uh, the photosphere from the sun. If it was any smaller, you'd have problems with the chromosphere of the sun. Both is bad for us. So thank the Lord he made the moon the right size and put it at the right distance so that we can uh, it not just enjoy its looks, but actually be able to live on this earth because of it. So, astrophysicist Hugh Ross made a calculation. He's, he's identified of these, these constants that I've been talking about, 122 of those puppies. And he says these cosmic constraints uh, are required in order for life to exist anywhere in the universe. You've got to have these 122. And he says the probability for one planet in the entire universe to have all 20, 122 of these Remember, you have to have all 122, not 121. You have to have 122, and they all have to exist. And the probability of that occurring on any one planet is 1 in 10 to the 138th power. That's one chance in 1 with 138 zeros after it. I mean, wow, that's a big number. He goes on to say that, that in all of the universe, there's only... Um, uh, 10 to the 70th power total atoms in the entire universe. That's all the atoms there are. Now, what does that tell you? It says there's virtually no chance that life can exist anywhere in the universe. Can't happen. There is no natural way that life can exist. But it does. It does exist. It exists right here. Shouldn't, but it does. And that's because God designed it that way. Cosmologist Ed Harrison said that here is the cosmological proof of the existence of God. The design argument of Paley, updated and refurbished. The fine-tuning of the universe provides prima facie evidence of deistic design. So the design of the universe, more than enough to, you know, to point toward the evidence of God. But there's more. The design of life itself also points to a creator and his purposes. After all, if the universe is created and designed, then we should expect life to also be created and designed, right? So let's take a look at how that, how that is. We begin uh, by looking uh, at uh, the structure of an animal cell. Very important. The animal cell is significantly more complex than Dur or Derwin. <laughs> Darwin. Uh, thought back when he was doing his, his work and, and on evolution and the origin of the species. He wrote that book, remember? Well, he didn't really have a clue, really, 
of what a, a cell looks like and how complicated it was. In fact, he thought everything was pretty simple. But it wasn't until the 20th century, and we started uh, uh, be, uh, having access to more sophisticated microscopes, where we're able to really look inside and see how complex a cell is. It's amazingly complex. Um, this, you, you find uh, 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 within that body, I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And uh, a cell is, is basically consists of um, uh, uh, three major components. You have the overall body of the cell, then you have the nucleus, and inside the nucleus, you'll have chromosomes, and in the 23 chromosomes, right? And inside the chromosomes, you have what? DNA. So that's what makes up a cell. But that's extremely complicated. We'll take a look at some of the complexity of these cells. They contain very special types of complex motors within a cell. The first, um, uh, uh, first one I, I want to talk about is um, uh, our, our rotary motors. Now, these, these motors are like any kind of motor, the kind of motor in your, uh, in your, in your, your car or a hydraulic motor. They're the, they work essentially the same way, same principles. And a rotary motor in a cell, um, and you, I think I got a picture of one there. Give me the next picture. Give me the next slide. There we go. That's, a, that's not a real picture of a, of, a, of a rotary motor in a cell. That's an artist's rendition of one. But this is a, a bacterial uh, flagellum, and it swims around and tumbles around uh, and, uh, and acts as a propeller that is powered by this rotary motor. And this motor is driven by this flow of protons across this membrane. And the motor is exactly the same as any rotary motor you would have. Any, they're all the same. It has a drive shaft, it has a rotor, it has a hook, it has a stator, it has a bushing, and a few other sundry parts. They all go together and work the same way if you had a rotary motor in your, in your, in your car or, or uh, to, to pump uh, hydraulic fluid or anything. They're all, they, it functions exactly the same way. Well, God designed this within these cells. The other kind of motor are linear motors. And these are the more popular ones. You'll see more of these than you'll see of the, of the rotary motors within cell, cells. Most cells will have a, at least one or more linear motors. And they're motor proteins that are, are a driving force then behind the key processes in every cell. It's what makes a cell work. And they function like a linear motor. And these little uh, devices, they, they transport packages from one part of the cell to the other along this 13-lane highway within your cell, back and forth. I think I've got one going back and forth. There he is, right there. There he is. That, that's me, <laughs> carrying out the garbage. No, but that's, that's a rendition of how it works. These are actually inside our cells, particularly these linear motors, very, uh, very common in most any animal cell. You'll find one or more of these, of these um, uh, motors that are working within the cell, delivering packages back and forth. It's like, a, it's like the, ups, the ups person in their green truck, a brown truck. What, are, what color is a truck? Brown or green? No, I'm colorblind. I don't know. But anyway, that, that's what it's doing. It's delivering these packages back and forth within the cell, this linear, linear motor. Well, the cell contains various components that interact and depend on each other for the function. But, but the real heart, or maybe better described as the real brain of the cell, is DNA. So I want to spend a few minutes and talk about DNA. It's the backbone of all life. It has a, a helical structure that looks like a, a ladder that's been twisted. Take a big, long ladder and twist it. And that's, that's what DNA looks like. 
and you have these uh, molecules on the outside that form the outside of the, uh, uh, of the ladder. Uh, you don't need to know what they are. I won't even mention it. But the important part are the rungs inside the ladder. These rungs are made up of, of four different kinds of nitrogen-based chemicals. And they're very important because how those chemicals go together on all those ladders determine what the creature is and how it will perform. It's all in there. It's a message in those four chemicals. And it's just like if you're writing a letter, right, on your computer, you type in, you take a bunch of letters, and you throw them on a page on, a, on your computer, and you create what? A message. So somebody can come and read that message. It says something. It provides information. That information is like instructions that tells someone else what to do or how to do it, right? Well, that's exactly what goes on in your DNA. You have all these, these four letters and the combination of how they're put together in each of these rungs. And they're all different combinations, almost an infinite number of combinations. It's planting information, giving messages there for, um, for that organism to tell it what it is and what it's... Uh, what it's supposed to, uh, what it's supposed to do. Um, a simple one-cell animal, like an amoeba, has as much information within that DNA in that one cell, as much information as a thousand complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. How many knows what that is? <laughs> Some of us actually remember these uh, hard-bound encyclopedias. Now, this is not a thousand volumes. This is a thousand complete sets within a one-celled amoeba. It's amazing because of how that message is and what's in there. And for more complex people like humans, that information and informational capacity is, is just almost unbelievable. According to Carl Sagan, he says the information content of the human brain equals 20 million books. It's how much information is in your brain. I think, I think I may have come up a little short on that. Some of you may have a little more. I don't know. But on the average, we should have about 20 million books up there in our brains. DNA also represents a chicken and egg dilemma. There's a problem with DNA. This, to me, is the most amazing part of all. For you see, on the DNA and the protein of the DNA, there's certain protein that is required for DNA to be formed. You have to have this protein to form DNA. But the problem is the only place that that DNA is formed, or that protein is formed, is inside the DNA. So if you don't have this protein, you can't have DNA. But if you don't have DNA, you can't make this protein. So which is it? It's a chicken or egg dilemma, isn't it? Someone had to put that whole thing together. Someone or something had to begin that process of DNA functioning. Life, life contains a message in the DNA. And that message is expressed in chemicals. But those chemicals cannot cause the message to be any more than pen and ink can cause a message on paper. It cannot cause a message. The message of life points to an intelligence beyond the chemicals. So life is in the message of the chemicals, not the chemicals. That's the truth. That's the miracle. The message of the chemicals is what's important. 
not the chemicals themselves. So the answer to the source of life lies in finding the source of the message. And that's the truth. So amazing and, and obvious is this truth that atheist microbiologist Michael Denton made this proclamation. He says, the complexity of the simplest known type of cell is so great that it is impossible to accept that such an object could have been thrown together suddenly by some kind of freakish, vastly improbable event. Such an occurrence would be indistinguishable from a miracle. Wow. Not only is there complexity at the smallest level, but certain organs are so complex that they, uh, they, they had to have been designed and put together in totality in order for them to be a working system. They can't have part of them. You have to have the whole thing. And the, and the human eye is a good example of that. Our eye contains over 40 unique components and a whole bunch of subcomponents. Every one of these must work jointly in order for there to be proper sight through that eye. Any one of them don't work, you don't have vision. It doesn't work. You've got to have the whole thing. Only a complete eye can com produce vision. Did you know that? That's true. And while it's true that different animals have varying different designs of eyes, it's all the same, unless each of these designs is complete, as is, unimpaired, vision will not be possible. You won't be able to see. The eye is not an eye unless all the components are there. Without all the components, the eye uh, serves no purpose at all. There's no purpose for an eye unless everything is there. It can't evolve into an eye. It just has to be. It just has to be there with all its parts. It can't, it can't form over time. It has to be. <laughs> There's no other way. It can't evolve. The eye is an example of what we call of irreductible complexity, which basically means if you new, remove any part of one of the parts, any, any one of the parts, then the whole system uh, becomes unfunctioning, non-functioning. It won't work. You can't make it less complex. It has to be complex, exactly how it's designed. And the, the eye is only one example of that. Scientist Adam Sandridge summed it all up, I think, pretty well. He says, the world is too complicated in all its parts and interconnections to be due to chance alone. The more one learns of biochemistry, the more unbelievable it becomes, unless there is some sort of organizing principle, an architect for believers. So last week we, we said the question that has to be answered is why is there something rather than nothing at all? That's the, the question you have to ask about uh, the, the beginning of, of anything, space and time and, 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 and matter. So why is there something rather than nothing at all? We can add to that tonight. We can build up and, and add a second question. Why is that something so uniquely and specifically designed? You have to answer that question too. It's just as important. There's only two types of causes. There's intelligent causes and there are unintelligent causes. No others. And only intelligent causes bring about intelligent design and information.
Information comes from intelligent design. That comes from an intelligent source. And even a cursory look, a rudimentary look at one or the other can tell you which it is. A few years ago, I made a trip out to uh, Mount Rushmore. How many people have been to Mount Rushmore? Have you seen it? It's an amazing thing to see, isn't it? But when you go up and you're driving up and you go, what do you see? You see all these granite mountains. They're just mountains. You don't, you don't have any idea that there's anything other than just, they're just naturally caused mountains, right? But when you see Mount Rushmore, what do you see? What comes to your mind? That they just happened? No. You know right away. This mountain over here is natural. This mountain here has got these four faces on it. Somebody carved that. Some intelligent individual being made that. That's an intelligent cause that you can see the difference from the mountain where there has been nothing done to it. There is a unique difference between the two. And the the uh, uh, microbiologist Michael Beale said it pretty well. He says, life on earth at its most fundamental level in its most critical components is a product of intelligent activity. The conclusion of intelligent design flows naturally from the data itself. The preponderance of all the evidence clearly supports this one conclusion, right? And it's the same conclusion that Anthony, that atheist Anthony Flew reached when it caused him to abandon his atheism and become a believer in God. We talked about him last week, remember? One of the most renowned philosophical atheists in the 20th century. In the end, he had, he had to make this proclamation. He says, how can a universe of mindless matter produce beings with intrinsic ends, self-replicating capabilities, and a coded chemistry? How could it? The universe and the life it supports on this earth and the very existence of that complex life points only in one direction, to God, to a designer. The one who began it is the one who designed it for his purposes. And he put the whole thing together for the ultimate purpose of having a relationship with you and me. That's why it's all there. And everything that we look at points to that conclusion. There is actually an immaterial, powerful, intelligent being beyond the natural world who created the universe and designed it precisely. Not only to allow life on earth but for the specific purpose of having this creature of the crown jewel of his creation, humanity, to have this relationship with him. Look at these words from Isaiah chapter 40. It says, Who will you compare me to? Or who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up. Look up and see. Who created these? He brings out the starry host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of his great power and strength, not one of them is missing. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk around without the words. Do you know what you're looking at? You're looking at an actual picture of a galaxy taken from the Hubble telescope out in space. This is the farthest galaxy that the Hubble telescope can see. It reaches out to the virtual edge of the universe. What do you see? 
What do you see in the center of that universe? Can't you see it? No matter how close in we are or how far away we look at anything in this universe, we find its creator and the ultimate purpose for his creation. Okay. Thanks for letting me share with you. I know it's a lot of scientific garbledygook, but the message is what I want you to remember. Wherever you look, however how far away or how close, everything points to God. It's all there so that we can be in this eternal relationship with Him. That's what it's all about. All the evidence, everything screams that, and we need to embrace it. Questions? No questions? Wow! I must have done a fantastic job. Oh, yes. Full my night. Go ahead. Uh, no green men. No green men unless they came from here and flew out there <laughs> and ate something bad for dinner and got sick. Yeah. Not dark. <laughs> Well, I, they may not be junk in the future. Maybe if the Lord tarries, maybe we'll be able to fly in spaceships. But there you go. <laughs> well, I didn't talk about what I didn't talk about is quantum mechanics tonight. Any any astro any uh, physicists here? You know what quantum mechanics uh, 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 it says that. What we knew about some of the laws of physics were not complete. We only had partial knowledge. It says there's particles that are smaller than atoms. And, it, and at those particles, if you, if you divide all, us into those levels, we actually become un, undistinguishable from energy. And we could actually then, at that level, pass through solid walls. True. Wow. Huh? Isn't that, uh, well, isn't that kind of uh, spiritual? Huh? Well, anyway, next week, we're going to look at the reliability of the Old Testament. We're going to grasp and get an understanding of how we know that what it says represents the truth, the real truth. How we can be certain of that and how we can tell others, convince them that it is the truth. That's important. And then the week after that will be our final week, and we're going to look at the proof that we have for the resurrection. Not just biblical proof, but non-biblical proof as, as well. How we know the resurrection is true and why that's so important. In my view, that's a good one to end on because there is nothing more important to us than knowing and understanding the resurrection. Because now you have the beginning of everything, the biggest miracle of all, right, is to create all this that we've been talking about out of nothing. And then the second biggest miracle is the resurrection and eternal life that comes from it. Wow. We're going to have two bookends that's going to wow you, I hope. Uh, no, if there's no questions, I am done. You, 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 we are offering time? Oh, so here we go.